Paul, thank you. And to the staff, man, I know you guys have a fabulous staff. If you're a visitor like I am this morning, I'm telling you, you are at a fabulous church. I don't know if you guys know this, but at least from my account, probably one of the fastest growing churches in the entire state of Indiana. God is doing things here that not just you at your church are hearing about, but throughout communities, people are hearing what God's up to. Thank you. I mean, that's, this is an exciting time for the life of the church. I love what's happening with the campuses. Carmel needs that. It is a fantastic place. I can't wait to see all that God's going to do with you guys. But if you have a Bible, pull that thing out, open up to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And I'll tell you right off the bat, this is not a normal message. I, I love things organized, teach the Bible, and have a few points of looking at a particular passage of Scripture. But this, this morning, I'm going to be sharing uh, my heart some experiences that we've gone through. If you've ever prayed one of those big prayers asking God to show up and he didn't show up, I want to talk about that. And and we're just going to be honest and real this morning, and I hope that's okay. And just allow God to use a few passages in scripture and the message that he's put on my heart this morning, hopefully just to get to a place of vulnerability to allowing God to speak to us this morning. And as you turn to Romans 8.18, I want to tell you the story. You know, I lived in Southern California for about eight years, most of my adult life before moving back here uh, to Indiana. And my wife's from Southern California. Believe it or not, there are mountains in Southern California. And at the top of one of those mountains, Big Bear Mountain, there's snow in the wintertime. And I got to take a group of adults uh, up to top for a retreat to the mountains to go skiing, snowboarding, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we had this logical decision we made to go out. Anybody been sledding since they were nine years old? Okay, I hadn't really been sledding since I was about nine. And we decided we were going to go find the highest hill in the mountains and go sliding down it as fast as we could. And so we went out there, and I didn't realize, you know, it's not really like the wooden toboggans anymore. There's all kinds of fast sleds now. And so we got to the top of this, I'll call it a mountain, got all the way up there. I was exhausted, first of all, from walking up there. And and suddenly, I don't know what came over me. I know we're in sports-infested Hamilton County, so we probably have some competitors in the room right now. But I got to the top there, and I suddenly wanted to show everybody what an incredible sledder I was. And, And I promise this is true. I took the snowboard. I was like a little kid, man. I took it. It was like one of those super slick ones that's made out of foam with the handles so you can go face first down the mountain. And I just took running as fast as I could, which is not that fast anymore. And then I dove head first, landed on my chest, Superman style, started flying down the mountain. I didn't realize how fast you can get going on some of those sleds. Suddenly I look up and like snow is flying by my face and I, I'm realizing I'm going really fast. I don't know how fast. It had to have been, I don't know, like a million miles an hour or something. That's how fast I was going, man. And I look up and right in front of me, I see something that I had forgot about. On the way up, we had noticed halfway down this mountain, there was a concrete wall about four feet tall, a foot thick that came to the center where there was a ravine, a concrete ravine for runoff. I look up, I'm four feet from it, going a million miles an hour. And so I just put my head down and prayed, and I went flying over the first part and hit my head on the concrete wall, fell backwards, and landed in the ravine. Now, when I woke up, there was nobody there to tell me what a great sledder I was. I was just lying there in the ravine going, what just happened? You see, what I'm going to share with you this morning and the scripture we're going to look at, you know, I want to invite you guys to to live a a life of faith. 
I know you guys have talked some about that, and I'll get to that, but, you know, to take big risks for God sometimes. The type of risk where you have to go all in and give up complete control to God. But what happens sometimes when life doesn't turn out the way that you thought? See, some of you metaphorically have hit that wall, and you've been laying in that ravine for a while. And I can tell you, if it wasn't a supernatural act of God in my life, that I'd probably still be laying there today, metaphorically, bitter at God for what had happened in my life. That's what I want to talk about. What do we do when you pray the big prayers and God doesn't answer them, uh, or at least not the way that you want him to? Romans 8, verse 18. And, and this doesn't actually talk directly about prayer, but this is the theme verse for what I want, want, to, want to share this morning. Romans eight eighteen. I consider that our present sufferings, if you're taking notes, you can underline present. Notice it doesn't say eternal, forever. If you're here and you're going through something, it doesn't say that it's going to last eternally. That our present sufferings do not compare, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. This passage is talking about that this life on earth and the sufferings that we incur while we're here, it won't compare to the glory that happens and occurs when Jesus returns and we go to spend eternity, those that have professed Him as their Lord and Savior, spend eternity with their Father in perfect paradise in heaven. That that, that eternal perspective of what it's going to be like to experience that eternally, it doesn't compare to the present sufferings that we're in in this lifetime. Does anybody want to say amen to that? See, what we're going to look at is those present sufferings this morning. In, uh, in February of 2010, all this began with a prayer for our family. It was a dangerous prayer. And I had been at a conference out, actually, and I was outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and I heard this pastor preach on the triumphal entry of Jesus. You guys remember Palm Sunday? We waved the palm branches and everything. But we forget how they actually got the donkey that Jesus rode in there. I mean, essentially, Jesus asked his disciples to go and steal a donkey. Did you ever catch that? And so they say, if anybody asks why you're stealing a donkey, just say that the Lord told me to do this, that Jesus sent me. And this pastor was sharing about how he got into ministry and he made the difficult decisions that he went through because God had called him to, that Jesus sent him to do this. And so no matter how difficult it was, he was going to live for him. And I heard that message and I just got down on my knees in this dirty little hotel room that night and I just said, God, I've been doing ministry for about a decade at that point. We had a great life. I'd been at the church in Southern California for seven or eight years. We'd seen God grow this ministry and do all kinds of fun, crazy stuff. And it was at a large church, so I didn't have to worry about a lot of the concerns and stuff because, you know, I was stable, provided for. And I just said, God, you know, we love our lives, but I don't want life and I don't want ministry to become a career. I want it to be about a life for you. And, and man, I, I will be honest, I hadn't always been there. That moment of desperation with God, and I just said, God... If you would have us anywhere, what would you have us do? And I don't get those God moments that often, but it was just clear, okay, move to Indiana, start a church that involved three friends from high school. And the message this morning is not about that, but like with any God moment, you have this experience and you start seeing some confirmations. I asked my wife who's from Southern California, what do you think about moving to Indiana and starting a church? And I expected to just get laughed right off the phone because I was calling her from Georgia. She says, yeah, I think we need to do that. It blew me away, and we had other things happen, and, and finally, six months later, in, uh, in, in July of 2010, we found ourselves living here in Hamilton County, and God had just said, okay, let's do it, we're all in. You take that leap of faith sometimes, you go, okay, God, you got control. A month after getting here, we knew that we had our, our oldest son, Jake. Before our, our oldest son, Jake, was born, we picked out our second son's name was going to be Jackson. 
And we knew that we were pregnant before we came here. After we got here at an 18-week appointment, we went in to find the gender of the baby at a 4D ultrasound place, not at a doctor's office, and we found out that it was a baby boy. And here's a picture of him. We were so pumped. Our, our son was going to have a brother. My wife came from a, just her and her mom, broke a family. All she wanted was a, a big family. That's all she wanted. And we were excited. But then I noticed something. On his stomach, it looked like there was a, a small beach ball on the outside of his stomach. And they said, we we've never really seen that. You need to go to a doctor and find out what that is. We had just moved to town a month before. My wife didn't know anybody. We didn't have a doctor, so we went to uh, IU Health North there in Carmel the next morning, and we went to see the doctor, and what we heard, we weren't prepared to hear. And please hear me as we get into this. This, this is heavy, but I don't want us to leave here just down or depressed. I want us to leave here excited for what God does. You see, we got news that morning that that, that sack on the outside of his body was actually his intestines on the outside of his body. And the doctor said... Well, that could be eventually fixed, and it's called an emphalocil. That's really not the major problem here. See, he, thinks, he thought it was a sign of a genetic disorder known as trisomy, and that he most likely either had trisomy 13 or 18, which he told us was incompatible with life. I'm telling you, my wife and I were just devastated. All we wanted was the big family. We had just moved here, get this news, and we didn't know what to do. Never heard of trisomy See, most of you are probably familiar with trisomy 21. That's Down syndrome. Trisomy just means you have three of one particular chromosome instead of two. And so it causes problems in every cell of your DNA and the development of it. And the lower the number, the greater the problems. And our son with trisomy 18, not only did he have his intestines outside, he only had one hemisphere of his brain instead of two, called holoprothencephaly, meaning that he wouldn't have control of some of his vital uh, abilities in his body because his brain wouldn't work correctly. He had a single umbilical artery, so he got the, half the nutrients of a normal child. He had some minor heart defects, and we would later find out that he had a major heart defect. Just crushed. We had to make some big decisions. You know, most trisomy babies, one of the common you know, choices is, is actually abortion. And we knew that we wouldn't do that, but we knew we had to decide, well, what are we really going to do here? And we said, okay, God, we're going to do anything to provide life for our son, to see what you can do with, with his life. And so we started praying a huge prayer. The type of prayer that would be embarrassing if it didn't happen. And we prayed for our son to be healed. And I'm not like a faith healer or televangelist or anything, but I just believe that the God in Scripture is still the God that exists today. And if he did some incredible things, he could do some things in the life. Like you guys may be familiar with Joshua chapter 10. I know you did something with uh, Sun Stand Still and talked about that. And some of you have prayed some Sun Stand Still prayers. And Joshua 10, you get the story that God literally made the sun stand still on its axis and did this miracle to give Joshua victory that day. But the God that did that could definitely heal our son. Or look at Hebrews chapter 11. If you have a Bible, turn there. And I'm, I'm going to reference a few of the people in there if you want to read through it on your own. But in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll read about Enoch and these other people of faith. In Hebrews 11, you kind of get the hall of faith, all right? This isn't like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, that Hall of Fame. This is the Hall of Fame of people who live by faith. And what you read in there are people like Noah. Think about Noah for a second. They brag on his faith, but Noah built a prehistoric Titanic and stuffed two of every animal on it. I mean, the guy was a little bit crazy. You've seen Evan Almighty. The guy was insane. And they list him in the Hall of Faith. Abraham, 
Here was a guy that took his son to the top of a mountain to sacrifice him because God had told him to. I mean, social services would be all over Abe today, right? And rightly so. Abe was crazy. And then you look at my favorite one, Moses. Here was a guy that convinced thousands and thousands of his relatives to flee from the Pharaoh and his army to go out to the desert because God is going to provide for them once they get there. And see, we all remember that story that God parts the Red Sea and we remember the outcome, but we don't worship an outcome, do we? We worship God. We pray to God, not to an outcome. And see, we remember the outcome, but we forget what it would really be like in our generation to live by extreme faith like that. Could you imagine being Moses? He convinced all these thousands and thousands of people to go out to the desert. He gets to the Red Sea, thousands of his relatives staring at him, Pharaoh and his army coming to kill and pillage, destroy him. See, everybody wants to see the Red Sea part in their life, but nobody wants to put themselves at the edge of it with Pharaoh coming to destroy them, do we? Yet in the Bible, oftentimes, huge acts of faith require putting yourself in a place where God would have to show up to actually provide for you. And see, we began reading those stories and we said, okay, God, this makes me really uncomfortable, but we're going to do that. And we didn't just pray silently to ourselves. We started telling people that we were praying to see him healed. And I can tell you with absolute certainty, we really believed, although God never told us directly, we really believed that he would be completely healed. See, the doctors told us he wouldn't make it full term. And that if he did, he would likely die within minutes. And as we're praying these prayers, my wife began to keep a blog. And it was nothing fancy. It was just like a way of her, like, therapy for herself. Once a week, she'd post something. You still go and look at it. It's lisahoosman.wordpress.com. Nothing fancy. Just put her prayers out there. And people began to read this. And before we knew it, like, thousands of hits started happening on her blog of people praying for, for Jackson. And then tens of thousands of people from different parts around the country and different parts around the world. I actually have a map. And my wife got tired of marking them because she started getting a lot of people praying. In fact, in places like Afghanistan and Asia and, and Israel and these different places, the medical community started hearing about it as we were dealing with this and started praying. And it was like, okay, God, show up. In January of 2011, we invited people to fast for 10 days. and Just say, God, heal, heal them. We want to see a miracle happen here. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, our son, um, he, he didn't die in the womb. He made it full term. But we kept going back to the doctor expecting to be completely healed, and he wasn't. And on uh, February 23rd at 7.35 p.m., my son was born. And I'll always remember the time because I didn't hear a cry. And I asked the doctor, is our son alive? Was he born? And he said, yes, he is. He's over on the table right now. You can go and look at him. And I, I went around, and what I saw, I was not prepared to see. I mean, I thought I had experienced pain in my life, but I walked up, and I saw my 3-pound, 12-ounce little baby boy who was full-term. He only got half the nutrients of a normal child. Laying there, and he was purple and gray, and he wasn't breathing. And the doctors later would tell us he's about maybe a 1 on the APGAR scale. And the neonatologist was trying to take a piece of metal to open up his airways and his esophagus so that he could intubate him with the respirating tube. And they were successful at doing that, and they kept him alive by pressing a button every couple of seconds to initiate breaths for him. And then they wheeled him around, and for the very first time, my wife got to, to meet our son, something she was excited to see, and I actually have a picture of that. She got to reach out and touch him. Can't tell you what that meant. And then they quickly wheeled him away because they were expecting minutes or maybe an hour or two to a room and eventually 
after a couple hours after the surgery, my wife made it there, and she got to see him again there. And there's a picture of him and her. And that night, we had to make a difficult decision. They said, your son not only has all the problems we knew about, he also has a major heart defect. And he will likely die in the next hour or two. But if we do a small surgery and put a central line IV in, we can give him some heart medication that might keep him alive for maybe a day or two, but no promises. We had a difficult choice to make. You know, we didn't want our son to suffer either. And we decided God had brought us this far. We wanted God to, to see to fruition, to have our son healed and to have him live a long life. And we just decided, okay, God, we're going to do it. And I'll tell you, our son didn't live a, a day or two. He, he made it a week. And after that time, the doctors began to say, you know, he was digesting food on his own. There's a picture every day at 7.35 p.m. We'd celebrate his birthday. That's on day five. We lived in the hospital during that whole time. That's uh, our older son, Jake, there. And, you know, we're kind of new to town, figuring everything out as this went along, and people just began praying and continued to be there for us. And, and people started following her blog even more while we were in the hospital. And to date, almost a half a million hits have happened uh, on, on his story online. And as we're praying, we actually even celebrated our anniversary while we were in there in the hospital together. And you just never get to that moment where it's like, okay, God, we, we're doing it. We'll put ourselves out there now. He's, he's made it a week. He's digesting food on his own at this point. He's growing. I said, if you can get him off the respirator, you can take him home. Now, let me say that again. My, my son, that had trisomy 18, diluting every cell of his entire DNA with one hemisphere to his brain, with a single umbilical artery, with half the nutrients of a normal child, with minor and major heart defects. And oh yeah, I didn't mention this. The heart defects at, this, at a week along, they said, we haven't seen that for days. We don't need to give him the medication anymore. And so we hadn't been given medication for days. And it's easy to whisk that away and just say, oh, that was just a misdiagnosis. But I believe with everything, God wasn't done with our son. And he extended his life healing that part of his body. And, and what happened next was probably the most difficult. See, as we were praying, we just knew God had brought us this far. He was improving. If we could get him off the respirator, we could take him home. All those problems, everything, all of our fears, we never, this would be it. We would get to take him home. And so to, in order to get him off the respirator, he had to take a CO2 test where he had to initiate breaths on his own. And the test lasted an hour. I'm going to show you a video, and this is still to this day a proud dad moment for me. My son didn't just breathe for a minute or two. He breathed on his own for the entire hour. Uh, let's watch this together. Here's Jackson. He's breathing on his own for the very first time. This is his monitor. And they have the... Um, the rate set at zero, right there, and he is breathing 49 breaths all on his own. He's doing really great. So now we just have to see how long his lungs are going to stay, um, make sure that they don't get tired. He looks to be pretty comfortable and doing pretty well. The doctors are excited. And hopeful that maybe someday we can take that tube out of his mouth. Someday sooner than later. 
right? Say thank you everybody for praying for me. I'm doing a good job. You know, oh man, we were so excited right there. You hear it, my wife's voice. We just knew the doctor was going to come back and, and give us the good news. And eventually we would slowly wean him off the respirator and be able to take him home. And the neonatologist came back and told us this difficult news that while our son initiated breaths on his own for the entire hour, his brain, because he had one hemisphere, didn't tell his lungs to exhale the carbon dioxide. And over the course of that hour, he had just poisoned his system. He, he began to crash over the next couple of days every so often. At one point, they had to take the respirator out and put a bag in him again, and the doctor had to help him breathe again. And Finally, after a couple of days, he stabilized, and we tried the test again, and he didn't even make it close to the hour. He, he was having just awful experience. And over the course of the next few days, he began to crash almost hourly. It got to the point where he could go at any time. And, and we had gone from up here down to here and see through the course of this we've met a lot of people that continue to live down here and you experience pain and, and God doesn't answer your prayers and you get frustrated and angry at God and you blame him and you're bitter at life in general and it happens life happens you go through that fire sometimes and, and, and what we decided to do was God had brought us this far we weren't going to give up on him God, heal our son. Everybody's why. It wasn't just that we would get our son back. It was now that all these people from different parts around the world were praying, fasting, were watching online, especially as we were living in the hospital those, those two weeks together. We just said, God, heal him. Now's the time. And we made the decision that rather than having him die in the next hour or two at any given moment, we were going to take the respirator out and just ask God to heal him and help him to breathe. And so on March 9th at 7.35 p.m. of 2011, two weeks to the minute of when he was born, we removed the respirator, and he slowly passed away in my wife's arms over the, the next half hour. And I can just tell you, man, it was one of the most painful experiences I could ever, ever think of, and, and I was never prepared for it. And my wife was, I, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I just, I just laid there and just didn't want to move. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see. You ever been that low? I mean, your brain doesn't even want to function. That's how low I was in that moment. And I just, I didn't even want to talk to God, but I was like, God, why? Why did you have all this stuff happen, bring us this far and just at the moment? And, and now our son passed away. Why, why did you do all this? And in that moment, I was expecting a, a spiritual, physical, or a physical healing for our son, a supernatural event to happen. And a supernatural spiritual thing began to happen in my life. And it just laid one story on my mind. And I didn't, even, I didn't share it with anybody for a couple of days because I just didn't want to think about it. And it was a story of John the Baptist. And I was like, why John the Baptist? Have you ever read the story of John the Baptist? I mean, here was a guy that lived in the wilderness for God. He ate honey and locusts. He was clothed in animal skins. The guy was crazy, all right? Bear Gillis had nothing on John the Baptist. This guy was nuts. He gave up everything for the, the cause of Christ. He paved the way for all of Jesus' ministry. He fulfilled the role of Elijah in the Old Testament. Here was a guy that gave it up for the Lord and his cause. And how was he rewarded for it? He has his head cut off and served to a pretentious woman at a on a platter at a party. That's not the story I would have chosen 
for serving God. I want the story where I serve God and I still get to be happy and have all the good things of the world. I want the story of those guys in the Old Testament. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. God provided a lamb, a goat. Moses, the sea parted, right? You, you look at all those stories. Noah, the flood came and, then it, and he saved his family because of that. that. That's what we read in Scripture, right? Well, what I realized is I had missed the end of Hebrews 11. Turn with me to Hebrews 11, verses, uh, verse 35b to 39. And realize that some of us have the first story, but some of us have the second story. Verse 35b. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Some people, the others, that was the story that they ended up with. That's what their life ended up with. And I, and I, I didn't want to hear that. God, here was the story that I wanted. Here was my story. Jackson healed. We're all happy. Yet God's best for Jackson's life was not my story. And what I've discovered is that while God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want him to, sometimes he answers them in the best way possible. See, God's best is always better than my story. And that's what I should want is his best. And I, I think of my son. I don't think he's in heaven right now looking down going, man, I really wish I would have lived 85 less productive years on the planet. Do you realize in two weeks, a, a baby boy that couldn't breathe, he couldn't talk, he couldn't do anything, accomplished more in his life in those two weeks for God and his kingdom than most Christians do in their entire existence on this planet. There is a woman that gave birth to a son this last fall. Online, she read our story, and she considered herself, at least on Facebook, a, a pagan witch. And she had a lot of kids, and she was going to abort her son. And she read her story, and she decided not to abort him. Instead, gave birth to him last fall and named him Jackson. That's one of two or three babies we actually had named after our son. There was a soldier in Afghanistan that recommitted his life from reading his story online. I've shared this, this message with a lot of people. God has paved the way in hearts for people to give their life back to the Lord, to believe in the good news that we have eternally, to say that the present sufferings do not compare to the glory that will be revealed in us someday. That eternal perspective is what life is about. It changes everything, and I never want to go back to that lack of desperation that life is about that and serving Him here and now because God's kingdom is at work now. Use me. It's about how much He can do with our life. It's about His best not about what I want in my story. And whether I get the first part of Hebrews 11 or I get the end of Hebrews 11, it's about how he could use us most. See, whole families got to pray together because of my son. People came back to the Lord. People committed their life to the first time to, to Jesus. I and mean, we've just seen God do incredible things. And I think he's celebrating that in heaven. And I wouldn't want to get through with my life and have less productive years for a longer period of time than have a shorter time and be more productive for God and his kingdom. I want God's best, not my story. In fact, I'm not naive enough to think that for some of us here this morning that we're the only ones that have suffered. Some of you have probably been through worse. And we've got to hear those stories over the course of this last year or so. And those present sufferings are real, aren't they? I mean, I don't want to make light of those. 
They're very real. But have you ever thought about it? If that's really our perspective on life, that it's about God and His kingdom and His best for our life, that while I may have my story, His best can be incredible sometimes. And that maybe for those of us that are suffering, maybe in a strange way, we actually have a leg up on everybody else. Because we've been reminded of what this world is actually like. That it's a temporal place. And that a day will come when Jesus Christ returns and those that know Him go to be with Him. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sickness and death. Read Revelation 21, man. It won't be there. And do you really believe that? Because it changes everything when you believe that. And you never want to go back to where you were. And you just say, God, forget this life. I'm going to do everything I can for your best in my life. Answer my prayers. I'll put myself out there in faith. But if I hit the wall, I know you're going to pick me back up because you're that kind of God. That's what we began to pray. That's how I've seen life change. Do you realize that my son... That, that passage God put in my heart of John the Baptist, I didn't realize this until after we picked out a cemetery plot. I didn't know anything about that. I'm 31 years old. We picked out a cemetery plot, and he's buried in the John the Baptist section of the cemetery. His name that we picked out over two years before he was born, Jackson, it, it, it literally means son of John. And I have seen people awaken to the truth of Jesus Christ through our son's life and through scripture that points and reveals the very true God of the universe that his presence is here and through his Holy Spirit in the room with us right now, maybe tugging on your heart. Will you pray with me? God, I just, uh, I just thank you so much, God. I wouldn't want any other story, God. I thank you so much for for what you've done in our lives, what you're doing in the lives of people in this room. And I know there are some people you have just been speaking to through this. Maybe some people that this morning have gone through some really rough stuff and they just need to lay it at the foot of your cross this morning, God, and say, bear this for me because I can't bear it. Maybe there are some of us in this room that, that we've been running from you. God, we've hid from you. We've, we've never really gave our life fully to you. We've, we've maybe prayed a prayer before, but we've never just had life-changing, altering mission of our life for you. And there are some of us that have never even given our life to you, Lord, and it's a reason for our entire existence is to live for you, and we live for everything else to fill our own lives with what we want rather than your best in our lives. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to pray with me, and this is a prayer, but it's more than a prayer. It's a lifestyle change. Say, God, I accept your gift of grace on the cross this morning. I admit that I'm not perfect. God, forgive me for my mistakes. In this moment now, with your spirit here in the room, God, I fully give my life to you. God, I profess that you are Lord, that you died on a cross, that you rose from the grave, overcoming sin and death, that I could live eternally with you and I could experience you here in my life. God, use me now. God, help me to celebrate for all of eternity with you. I give my life to you now in this moment. And if you are one of those people that has gone through some pain in your life and you say, God, I want to pray this prayer. I commit that pain and that suffering that I've gone through and going through. God, help me now because I know you're the only one that truly can. God, raise me up. Don't let me lay in that ravine anymore, God. I surrender to your will in every area of my life, including my pain. 
God, I thank you that we can be real, God. I thank you that even though sometimes I pray prayers that I would have you answer in the way I want, God, you always answer prayers, but sometimes in the, the best way that I can't even see at times. God, I just trust you. I thank you for that. God, we commit our lives, this place, our worship to you now. It's in Jesus Christ's holy name that we pray and all of God's family said, amen.